Happy Monday, everybody. How's it going? It's going well. Happy Monday. Hey. Welcome, Dave. Thanks <laughs> for joining us. Thanks, guys, for having me. Anytime, anytime. How was your weekend? It was good. It was good. Um, hung out nice and sunny and warm here in Bozeman, Montana. Did a little bit of work yesterday. Work. Okay. Can't, can't yeah. complain. Yeah, well, you know, you're a solopreneur, you know, it's pretty yeah. much every day's a work day. <laughs> yeah. Every day you got the case of the Mondays. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely true. So that's, that's really cool. Um, Matt's How about you? At, oh, I was just up uh, in Wyoming. We got a um, place up there. So it's up in the mountains. It's kind of nice getting up there because there's just nothing there, um, which I think is a, it's a feature, not a bug. So it's good, <laughs> good to get away. It's You're kind great. of interesting. It overlooks the uh, uh, the Oregon Trail as well, so it's kind of interesting because I think today in Utah it's Pioneer Day, so it's the day that all the uh, settlers, I think, what is it, Matt found Salt Lake or came into the valley or something like that. So something like that, yeah. I'll have to check the exact if that's when they got to Salt Lake or if that's when they held the first official celebration or something along those lines. Yeah. So anyway, anyway, they cross a horrible trail to get here, and here they are. So, um, Matt, your weekend, good, fun. Uh, yeah, I went to Coney Island for the first time, which is kind of like Whoa. Wyoming, I guess, but not. <laughs> Ooh, you're going to get some shit from the locals for saying that. <laughs> I'm sure I will. Why'd you go to the, no, uh, did you go to the amusement just, park there? No, I just, I mean, I just read a book and hung out on the beach pretty much. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a Coney Island. Type, so just, type of, ah, so it's a beach, I mean, you know. So just so I'm clear, you mean like in New York, right? In, yeah, yeah, it. in Brooklyn. Yep, exactly right, so. Oh, this is Matt, right? He's like, oh, what'd you do for the weekend? Oh, man, I went out to New York. You know, why not? <laughs> Hang out on the beach. Well, that's my place in Long Island. It's great. It's <laughs> Coney Island, but uh, yeah, yeah. it's, it's a bit different from Montana. So. Had, a, had a Nathan's. It was great, man. <laughs> Coney Island is like, uh, what do you see here in the comments here? Uh, Coney Island is like Wyoming classic. I mean, it kind of is. I guess it's a Wyoming of New York, but I don't know. Uh, or New York City. Um <laughs> I don't know. Uh, sorry for all the uh, um, people out there. Uh, they feel differently, but I don't know. They've said it, not me. Um, so. <laughs> but uh, anyway, cool. Um, Dave, for people who don't know you, who you are, do you want to give a quick intro? Yeah, my name is Dave Langer. Uh, I am a independent <clears throat> consultant and educator these days. I've been in the technology space for 26, 27 years. But the past 12, 13, I've been in the data space. So I've done things like traditional BI and data warehousing. I've done advanced analytics or data science and everything in between. Like and you guys, I have strong opinions about the field, um, which I'm sure we'll get into today. <laughs> and what's your current training focus? Let's let's talk about that real quick. Oh, uh, kind of runs the gamut. So for a long time, I was an R guy. I'm still an R fanboy, but due to popular demand, I've recently switched over to Python because I have a lot of clients and folks that are asking for the same stuff I used to teach in R, but they want it in Python for whatever reason. So I do. So I'm doing that now, advanced analytics training in Python, as well as uh, I also do data literacy as well. I help organizations raise the level of data literacy in there um, with their employees. Well, so you were one of the big holdouts too. I remember for a long time, it was like you're going to hold on to. You're going to pry your R from your cold, dead hands. And then, uh, <laughs> well, it, 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 look, if it's up to me, if it's up to me and I'm doing a client engagement, I'm using R. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've been coding 40 years now almost. Um, 
And so I know programming languages and, and when you're doing data analysis work, R, you just, you just write less code. It's just easier. I'm sorry. It just is. So when I have my choice, I use R, but mm. Python is the thing. So there you go. It's and thing. that's, yeah, it's just the massive mind share that extends across a bunch of different domains. I agree. Like having, it, I, I think you've used R and Python for data analytics quite a bit more than I have, but it's the Python is just way more verbose. In general, you can do most of the same things. It's just more verbose, but also you can do a lot of other non-data analysis things. And I think that's the big motivation for using it. I, I think, I think quite frankly, it's, um, I think what's happened is that data science has kind of moved from more of a analytical statistical focus over the years into more of a software engineering focus, especially with production ML and software engineers just like Python better than R. And I can see why, I mean, it's object oriented. It's all very similar um, to like, you know, conceptually to other languages that are popular like Java and C sharp in, in that regard. But if you're like really want to do data analysis, I mean, R is the way to go. It was built by statisticians for statisticians, right? And mm -hmm. they don't want to write, they don't want to type out a bunch of OO code. They just want to get their work done. So yeah, <laughs> that's, good. that's a good trend, you know, uh, kind of lead into, we had a um, Devon Peterson um, on the uh, show last week. He's uh, uh, the, one of the people who created Modin, right, in Python. But his paper on data frames was fascinating. It might have been one of, been one of the coolest things I've read in a long time. You know, he went into the history of data frames. I think data frames appeared in 1990 or something crazy like that, about the same time the data warehouse came out. So, you know, with S and then R, you know, took off. But he had a good point. It's like data frames are still um, the tool for exploratory data analysis, whether you like it or not. And, and I think R has the advantage in that sense where it's just, is a tool by statisticians for statisticians. Obviously, yeah. the rise of deep learning and data science with Python, I think in the 2010s, just that was just a force onto itself that I think it'd be really hard to replicate that again. It was just, I think it was a very interesting phenomenon. But, yeah. You know. The way I like to put it is like R and Excel are very, very much alike. Oh, here comes the heresy already out six minutes in. <laughs> Jesus, man. All right. Well, I know. I just can't, I can't help it. I just, I just can't sway on yourself wire, a drink you know? already. You know, it's uh, here in Montana. <laughs> well, but like Excel, Excel and R were both built from the ground up with the idea of a data table as the fundamental data structure. Right. <clears throat> that's, yep. that's basically the way that they were built from the ground up. So in that way, they're very similar. They're also very functional in their orientation. So they're very similar in that regard. And then you have OO languages like Java and C Sharp and C++ and Python, and they've got to bolt that stuff on top. And they yeah. usually use an OO paradigm for it, which to Matt's point makes it more verbose. So, Way more verbose. I wonder if you've tried making a data frame in a Java before. I did once <laughs> way back in the day when I didn't realize there was pandas out there. That sucked. You, did you did you like use a library or did you like write your own class for it? I started writing my own and then I found Guava, which was I think uh, uh, Google had open source it back in the early 2010s. And it's sort of got the job done, but for transpose, um, for example, mm. really hard to figure that out, I would say, for something that would scale. So you find pandas and it's like, oh yeah, it just does it automatically, whatever. So an R, yeah. I guess, would do the same thing, but you oh, know, yeah. we're trying to do production ML too, so it wasn't like you're going to throw R at it at that point. It would, you do it for a prototype, I think, but yeah. So I, I think the other thing that got me with R is that R will try to guess what your intentions are sometimes, which is really great for exploratory analysis as long as you can figure out what it's doing. It's not so good for production code in the sense that you don't you want everything to be absolutely predictable. You do not want any guessing with production code. But it also means you need to be more verbose with Python, which is a pain. Yeah. Yeah. And uh 
and I mean, and things too, you got, we have to differentiate our, like what it would look like in the early days. Yeah. yeah. And then, and then post Hadley, right? Mm, yeah. Hadley Wickham once had, for the audience out there. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hadley Wickham. Right. So Hadley Wickham is like a God in the art community mm -hmm. and, and rightly so. And then the tidyverse and all the stuff that he built and put it on top of R is like, Oh yeah, that was like, that's, that was a shift for me. In the early days I used R and Python and I would bounce back and forth. Especially for text analytics and NLP, I would use R. I used to be uh, Python because of the NLTK primarily, and R didn't really have anything like that. But once once I learned the tidyverse, it was like, there's no going back, right? Dplyr, ggplot2, all the stuff they got going on there. It, it, it makes working with data a joy. Um, and if you know SQL, some of the some of the vagaries of SQL are actually fixed in dplyr. For example, the order of operations makes sense in dplyr as opposed to SQL. <laughs> Select is last in SQL actually in processing, for example. Um, that sort of thing was really, it was really eye-opening for me what could be done with data using a programming language after Mr. Wickham uh, mm -hmm. invented the tidyverse. And do you think R's made a comeback? I kind of get the impression that maybe 2017 it was declining partially because of issues with memory and other problems and that a lot of those have now been fixed in the last couple of years and it seems like the community maybe is growing again but i don't have stats to support that i mean if you look at the popular stats right where they're like which are the most popular programming languages in the world um you see that ours not necessarily growing at an accelerated rate that being said if you look at specific verticals you tend to find that there is growth. For example, in pharmaceuticals, R is growing fast, mainly because folks are getting off of SaaS and then they're going to R instead um, and trying to get the regulatory agencies to, for example, to take uh, submissions based on R instead of SaaS, you know, that sort of thing. Education, for example, R is still pretty common in higher education in the United States, for example, mm -hmm. and elsewhere in the world. You know, financial services, meh, you know, um, I still find R pretty, pretty um, more commonly in manufacturing, for example, because mm. there's a lot of folks that do statistical process control, right. control and they, they use a lot of the R stuff there for that. Um, but, you know, your, your mainstream kind of companies. Yeah, not so much. And, and I hate to say that because I am an <clears throat> R fanboy. <laughs> but you got to go. You got to go with uh, what happens in the market, because back in the day, I was a C++ guy. Yeah, you were. You were a Microsoft dude for a while. So Yeah, so, so I was a C++ guy. I used to teach it on the yeah. side on nights and weekends because I loved the language so much. Yeah. And then, of course, Java and C Sharp came out, and then enrollment in my classes went. So you can talk C Sharp for a bit too then, or Java? Pardon, say that again? Did you teach uh, Java and C Sharp as well? I didn't because I, okay. was, I was a C++ guy. I was like, man, if you don't have pointers, you don't know what you're doing. So I'm out. Yeah, it's a good attitude. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's actually worked out pretty well, right? You got to move on to something else. Yeah. If, you, if you don't know the difference between a pointer to a pointer and a reference to a pointer, what are you doing, Godin? Yeah, Sonny says he's a C++ guy himself. Hi, Sonny. Good to see you. Um, <laughs> Kevin has a the, question. Um, is, is R complex to learn over uh, Python? No. Okay. Um, but let me qualify that. There's an asterisk on that. If you've never coded in a object-oriented programming language before, for example, if you've only coded in SQL or if you've never coded at all, but you've used Excel, R, in my experience, teaching many, many people how to program is easier as a first step than Python because with Python, you have to learn about a lot of OO stuff. And once again, especially if you learn R, 
for data analysis in particular using the tidyverse, the, the learning curve is much, much flatter in my experience. Mm. And I've had that confirmed too. Like, for example, I've taught at a conference before where I had attendees, they would attend a couple of my classes in R and then a couple of my classes in Python. And they would say, geez, R is way easier than Python. You have to write a lot more code to get the same thing done in Python. Well, it's uh, stats is a first-class citizen too. I think if you're trying to learn stats, I would still recommend doing it in R versus uh, Python. Again, it's, it's kind of like, you gotta f be familiar with the language. I think you also gotta be familiar with the underlying concepts more importantly. Right, Matt? I think it's in math, for example, Matt, I don't know what language you would choose if you were to teach something like linear algebra or um, uh, maybe, okay, better example would be differential equations. Um, if you were to pick a, uh, a software to teach differential equations, Matt, what would you choose? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, we used to use some really weird stuff back in the day. I'd probably choose Python, and it's funny, uh, Python, apparently, what a lot of the academics told me who started on Python early is that part of the reason Python got popular is that they were coding in C and C++ back in the day to try to encode mathematical algorithms and do testing and such. And then they discovered that Python had this really nice API to C, and so they would start transferring their code into Python and then just write the parts that needed to be fast in C, basically. And it, it was a really nice workflow for them because they came from this history. Um, I Regarding differential equations specifically, I, I don't know, Dave, is that something you can do easily in R? I haven't gotten that far into R to know. Yeah, you can. Um, of course, my, my experience has been that for more of those like, you know, mathematical and engineering type topics, MATLAB still seems to be quite popular, especially yes. in academia. Yeah, at least MATLAB, Matt, I think in Maple, I think it was the other Maple, one. Maple, uh, yeah. Mathematica. Yep, Mathematica. Yeah, Mathematica, yeah. 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 I actually took a, in my, when I got my master's in comp sci, I took a, a course in machine learning, which is essentially how I got into data, data science. Oh, yeah. um, and MATLAB was, MATLAB is what we used, um, which I thought was a very weird language coming from a C++ background. <laughs> Oh, it would be. It's, it's not. It's not for you. Um. It's not for me. <laughs> but these days, still love it, right? Yeah. yeah. But these days, after you know, they've been an art junkie for so long, I might revisit Matt. I'd be like, hey, this is pretty sweet. Yeah, it's, I think it goes back to you know, kind of right tool for the right job, right? Yeah, and I think yeah, that's yeah. sort of. I'm looking at the comments here, and um, you know, I think that just a central theme is it's, you know, Python's popular, which is why you're teaching it now. We'll get into the topic in a second here. I'm sure everyone's like, what the hell are you guys talking about? I thought we were talking about BI teams. Um, this will this will make sense in a second. Trust me, it'll make sense when you're older. Um, so, uh, <laughs> but but it 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 it's, I think it speaks to volumes of things, right? Like I, I personally like R, so I think it, it's kind of like the hand calculator of stats, right? It just it just yes. works. You don't have to do anything; it just kind of does things. Um, but then uh, Python just is what it is. It's super popular. But nowadays, I see hardcore Pythonistas. Um, sort of rebelling against Python now and moving on to stuff like uh, you know Rust and so forth. So it's just. Go. Yeah, teenage angst is what it is. You know, you, you get it gets popular, and you're like, ah, oh, this, this ain't my band anymore. I'm gonna go find a new band to, to follow. It's not so not so cool and popular. So it's just uh, it goes the other one. Although Go is interesting. You would thought by now it would have gotten some traction in data science, right? But it really hasn't. No, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's it's just one of those classic things, right? Um, when you <laughs> when you get past the teenage angst and you get into like the old crusties part of your life when the technology in the technology area, you realize like stuff comes and goes, comes and goes comes and, and goes. Waves. Well, you might be, I mean, Jess, Hey, everyone, what's up, Jess? Uh, uh, you know, you, you might be onto something here. I think you uh, should get back into MATLAB and uh, really just confuse <laughs> the hell out of everybody. Um, so it's like, 
Um, it's just you can't be pop. You can't. You can't. You can't. You can't get really attached to programming languages. Like I was saying earlier, I was attached to C plus plus, and then I just stopped teaching because I'm like, I don't want to do it. And then the industry moved on, and eventually I had to go along with it. So be passionate about programming languages for as long as you need to be, and then let them go. <laughs> yeah. Except except SQL. Well, um, yeah. SQL. SQL seem is going to be here after the nuclear apocalypse or the global like warming the, apocalypse or whatever terrible thing happens. It's like it's the cockroach like, of programming language, yeah. man. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, Cooper brings up a good point, like kind of back to the Go thing. Go is like Julia. We, we thought it'll pick up, but it didn't. I, I wouldn't write Julia off just yet. I mean, I think it, it still has some promise, but it needs. So I think what happened with Python was, and I noticed this in the meetup. So I started a Python meetup way, way back in the day before data science was like, um, you know, taking off and, all the talks back then were on web development because you had Django and you had Flask and that was really, you know, sort of the type of talks you'd be giving. Um, I was a dork that was spearheading like the machine learning talks and talking about data. And, and um, you know, then all of a sudden, I think with, with deep learning becoming popularized, you know, TensorFlow come out, um, you know, PyTorch moved off of what uh, was a Lua to uh, Python after that. And then all of a sudden it's like, I think it was off the races, really. You know, everything was enamored. Everyone was enamored by uh, machine learning and deep learning, and Python just saw a meteoric rise. I think, in the Tyobi index, for example, right? I mean, it was it was barely a top ten language back in the day, and now it's like number one, right? And nobody yeah. expected that. Everyone's like, Python's such a crap language. Like, why would you pay any attention to this thing? And to be fair, we always joke that it's like the second best language at everything. It's not great at anything in particular, actually, but it's actually pretty good at doing everything generally. So I always called it like kind of the crossfitter um, of like the uh, data of the programming languages. So it's just yeah, you know, like a general yeah. language, but you know. Yeah, yeah, it's just been it's it was designed to be a general purpose programming language, is like a Swiss Army knife kind of thing, right? Yeah. Wasn't super performant, but you can escape out to see as Matt indicated if you need to. Or it's object or, it's object oriented, yeah. but <clears throat> yeah. it's kind of not also in a certain types of ways <laughs> if you come from like a more purist background. Yeah. Right. So it's like you know, it's but it also up. sucks at functional programming. So it, right, it, it can tense, be it so. can be functional. <laughs> yeah, really badly functional. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, like the thing is, in the data science world, every framework now you, you go PyTorch again it, under the hood. It's it's seeing a bunch of other stuff, but Python is the API. Spark PySpark is now very dominant for Spark as the API under the hood. It's all Scala, but like you code it in Python and. It can connect into so many other systems. It's just that, like, it's the lingua franca, right? It's the standard language to communicate with just about anything. Right, yeah. and that's Scala is a great example, right? Because I, I remember when Spark was big and I was working at Microsoft. We did a project in the early days, and this was before PySpark actually had f almost complete feature parity with Scala. So we actually were learning how to use Scala. Um, and if you learn Scala the way it's supposed to be written, as a pure functional, it is astronomically difficult <laughs> if you come from an o background you're like good god what the hell is all this stuff tail call uh, optimizations and right yeah, everything and, about it yeah yeah so it's like a whole different type of paradigm um and that's just another and you mentioned lua i forgot about lua until you mentioned it joe <laughs> well i only recognize because my kids learning roblox right now to code and that and they have it in lua and i'm like dear god all right i guess we had to deal with, yeah, it, with that it just just, just think of all the programming languages we've mentioned that are just thrown on the ash heap of history. Well, I've been, I've been in my spare time, I've been learning Haskell again uh, for the fifth oh. time in a row. Because oh, whoa, who was it? Whoa. Chris Jenkins. I did an interview with Chris Jenkins, um, and he he was turning me on to like. So he used to be a, a functional um, programming consultant using like ClojureScript or something like that, or um, 
uh, front end development and functional programming. And I was like, you know, I'm kind of bored. I kind of just want to learn something new for the sake of it. And Haskell was like, you know, if, um, so I'm like midway through, you know, the Haskell book right now. I just do it in my spare time. You know, it takes forever, but I, I'm learning some cool stuff, you know, and I think that's part of the game. It's just, you know, you want to reinvigorate your, your joy of programming. It's like, do something new, do something exciting, learn MATLAB, um, learn uh, <laughs> uh, Haskell, you know, or go. I think I think Joe's learning Haskell because he's going to go, he's going to go work on Wall Street. And then he's going to hang out with Matt on Coney Island on the weekends. You got to find a way to get back to Matt. Yeah. So uh, we'll hang out on Joe's yacht once he starts working. (laughs) Exactly. Well, it's actually, uh, yeah, it's a cruise ship. But um, um, (laughs) um, awesome. The topic at hand. We got to get to this at some point. Everyone's kind of like, what the hell are you talking about? And everyone seems to enjoy it. If you you like what we're talking about, you like the rambling, um, let us know. We'll just continue. Otherwise, we'll we'll talk about, uh, let me see, what's the topic today? Why your BI team is your best bet for data science. I prepared so much that I just read the title. Um, So, Dave, (laughs) uh, softball question. Why is your BI team your best bet for data science? Yeah, and... Just to give a quick frame of reference, as I mentioned earlier when we started the show, but I'll just bring it up again. I come from, I spent a number of years in the traditional BI data warehousing space. That's that's how I got my start in analytics, like a lot of folks before data science was a thing. So the reason why this is like a really important idea is because if you go out and you look at a lot of organizations or you take a, take a survey of organizations, most of them actually don't have data science. They don't have data science teams. They don't have data scientists on staff, not really. I mean, especially if you move out of like the Fortune 500, even if you move out of the Fortune 1000, which is actually most of most organizations like in North America, for example, in US, US and Canada, you know, organizations with hundreds of employees, maybe a thousand or 2000 employees, they don't have data science, but they're interested in using data science, right? We're kind of gone through the whole Gartner hype cycle. Maybe we're starting to starting to rise up to the plateau of productivity in terms of data science, and they're interested in it. They're like, you know, they're not necessarily fast followers, but they're in the follower space and now they're ready for it. But there's also this idea that data science is hard. The project failure rates are alarmingly large. You have a lot of data scientists that are saying, I'm done with this field. I'm going to become a data engineer now, like maybe some of the folks hosting this show. Right. <laughs> and then um, so it's like, they have like, well, how do we how do we lower the risk of getting data science into our organization? And it, turns out for a lot of the a lot of the companies that I work with and talk to their BI team is a great fit because it's a it's a low cost low risk way to start dipping your toe into the data science waters it's funny too cuz this lines up pretty well um I Chris Tab and I recorded a podcast episode with uh, Solomon Khan recently that should come out in about a month. But we were talking about like, how do you resolve data quality issues? How do you lead with data? And a lot of it comes down to going to the people who know the data best. And that actually tends to be, there are two people in this group, I think. There's your BI team. In other words, the analysts who like are in the data all the time and the stakeholders. In other words, the, the manager of inventory is going to know the inventory data really well. And one of the most common mistakes I see amongst data scientists, even in larger organizations, is to ignore the people who actually know the data. And so to me, starting with those people for your data science totally makes sense. Yeah. And there's also some subtle stuff that people don't think about as well, right? Usually a BI and data warehousing team has broad data access, right? Because they they run the ETL pipelines or ELT or whatever the the acronym is nowadays, <laughs> right? BL- to extract it. ELT. Yeah. E- ELT? BLT. I don't know. BLT. Yeah. 
There's actually an acronym I came up for a uh, uh, reverse ETL. I think I called it bidirectional load and transform, which is actually a more accurate description. Plus, it tastes good. So, did you, did you trademark that? Uh, kind of, yeah. For, for ternary data. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, like BI I teams digress. have. Sorry. Yeah, no. This, this. Hey, we love this show. Okay, we just we just ramble. It's awesome. But like BI teams have broad access usually, and that's actually a real that's a real thing. Like when I'm as a, as a consultant, sometimes I parachute into an organization and do some work. I have to spend an inordinate amount of time just getting access to data, and the BI yes. teams already BI teams already got it. And to your point, Matt, not only do they have access to all these kinds of things, but they also know where all the all the bodies are buried in terms of data quality, right? They know that that system over there, ooh, baby, <laughs> right? They know all that kind of stuff. So that helps because as we know, um, as cool as the modeling stuff is, a lot of times you spend just as much time, sometimes more on data management activities, getting access to data, understanding the data, working with the data, all that sort of stuff. So BI teams have a lot of that already in their hip pocket so they can start focusing on delivering value quicker. And I think something that doesn't get enough attention, we talk about quality and modeling. Those are both really important. But what about data interpretation? So in other words, what does this particular flag mean? Well, those are the people at your company who actually know what that means mm -hmm. and can explain it, either do the data science themselves or explain that to the data scientists. Right. True story. Right. So I was working with a client and I pulled a bunch of data and this column at this particular date and before seemed to have different data values than from this date and beyond. And a true story, and I said, why is that? And they said, well, we over back then we overloaded the column. We didn't want to actually change the database. So we just actually changed the semantic of the data we stored. Uh, <laughs> who farted? And guess guess who guess who knows that kind of stuff? The people that built yeah, the data warehouse, true. right? They know that. <laughs> they know that. They well, they can tell it. you why too, assuming yeah. they're still working there. Um, yeah, assuming they're still working there. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's, it's yeah. funny when you dig into these data systems because it's kind of like being an archaeologist in some ways. You, you kind of yeah. dig, you know, and around your, you know, and then you look through old scrolls and like, you know, <laughs> it rips apart this parchment paper right. and you figure out what's going on. But yeah, there's always this, this weird stuff going on, right? And, um, but it's hard to put data science on top of that unless you, you know, and I think the, the one thing uh, Matt and I always say it's, you know, uh, most companies are barely doing AI, let alone BI. And I, I still think this is going to be true even in the days of, um, you know, uh, chat gpt baby um so uh it's just data is hard right and you come up into cruft like that that's every system i've always been saying like a lot of the corporate systems these just these are a dumpster fire where you can throw a large language model on top of this and expect it to work are you kidding right. me like right. it might it might you, but yeah. you know the bi is where i think you're going to get the um um the insights and also as you say the communication between the teams that are uh, responsible for the data right that's where the gold is it's not the analyst doesn't just sit there and magically conjure up a meaning of the data. That, if they did, that's that's super cool. And they're, they're like Rain Man and uh, super smart and um, right. kind of a savant at this stuff. But it's you know, typically you go and find this out by walking the uh, I guess they call it the Gemba Walk in the Lean World. But just you know, um, going going and seeing for yourself. You know. Yeah, so. and and that's the thing is like, if if because like a lot of the companies I work with. Um, or well out of the Fortune 1000. They're, but they're big enough where they have BI teams and they have data warehousing and they have reporting. Most of the time, it's stuff that isn't super sexy, right? A lot of SQL Server, some Oracle, you know, things like that, right? <clears throat> but what they have is all of this IP built into the data model of the warehouse. 
right? Even if it was built 10, 15 years ago, the basics of the business processes don't change. The fundamentals don't change that often. And there's been a lot of thought. There's been a lot of exploration. There's been a lot of requirements gathering, a lot of talking to business SMEs in, in crafting and, and evolving that underlying data warehousing data model. Yep. And part of it's also is data correction, right? So for example, if you're using a Kimball style methodology, there's no nulls in your data anywhere. And that's great because that's one less thing you have to worry about, right? Trying to pass a null to a machine learning algorithm. Usually they go, sorry, Dave, that doesn't work, right? So there's a lot of that built in. So then it's like, okay, look, you got all this knowledge. You know where all this data is at. You know the quality. You've got all of the, the business semantics. You know the business processes. And most importantly, you probably have relationships with the business stakeholders. All that's perfect. Right. I could I could teach you some random forest stuff or some K means clustering. That's pretty easy. I can do teach you that. The other stuff, that's the hard part. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna pop up a question here real quick. Are BI right. teams better for data science because they are results value driven? Mike Nash asks which What's up, Mike? How you doing? I'm a, I wonder if Mike's leading the witness here with this question. <laughs> it seems like well, another software question. You guys, you guys chatting behind the scenes on this? Like, Mike, ask Mike, a question about this. Mike, what's your title? <laughs> I am the director of BI. <laughs> uh, potentially. Potentially, yeah. So um, what I like to say when I, when I talk about this, especially with like technology leaders, you know, like directors and above in an IT organization, what I like to say is that, but also this idea that BI teams – tend to be analytically focused. So here's the thing, right? And, and, I, and I don't mean to be, well, I do mean to be this way, so I'm just going to say it. Because right? so, <laughs> this used to be me, by the way, right? I came, out of, you know, I came out of my master's degree program and I'd taken some machine learning courses and I was super, super, I was excited by it, right? Like a lot of folks getting into data science, right? I was like, oh my God, I can use my data warehouse as a crystal ball and try and predict the future. That's all I want to do is machine learning. That's all I want to do, predictive modeling. Where a BI team has a culture not focused on that. They see the value in analytics. They see the value in working with the stakeholders and that sort of thing. So that actually might be another benefit as well for starting with your BI team if you're introducing data science into your organization is that they'll think the, the machine learning is cool, but they've also got a culture that's like, I just don't do machine learning. And if I'm not doing machine learning, I'm going to find another job and quit. Right. So if you want to trade, if you want to equate that to the value proposition or results focused, then yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. I've got a question here from Montanata. What's up, man? Um, he wants your views on this. Uh, he says, My experience for harnessing the power of data, you need uh, BI and, and data science synergy even more than I or Python. Uh, choose your pick for the best uh, tech stack. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah. So now many years ago when I was a software engineer, when I got started in my career, I would have been like technology stack is the single most important thing. Later on, when I was a BI architect, I did BI and data warehousing architect, I would say tech stack selection is the most important thing. What beat that out of me was being an analytics leader and working directly with business executives and leaders. They beat that out of me. They don't, they don't, they don't freaking care. They don't care what they want is good enough results that allow them to make decisions to improve things, right? The only time that they care about the tech stack is when you ask for your yearly budget allocation for IT. That's mm. that's when they care. <laughs> yep. So in that case, they don't actually care what you pick. They just want to make sure it's cheap. That gets them the results that they care about. So from that perspective, um, 
I would say don't get religious necessarily about technology, which is part of the reason why I say for some some professionals that are interested in doing analytics in the organization, choose R, learn it first. If you don't if you don't work in a software engineering or a really technical team, or your career goals aren't to do that eventually, just learn R, ignore Python, just choose the tool that works best for you to get the results that you need. And worry about the tech stack questions later. Um, yeah. That being said, as a recovering architect, I do have to say, make sure that you know, you know, you choose a tech stack that fulfills your business requirements and also your cost considerations yep. as well, long term. Yeah, we actually had a really good chat last week with Devin about. He said, "What's the best API for data?" And he basically said a lot of the same things, like, "What you know, does it fulfill the basic needs you have? How? What's the mind share? Can you hire people? Does it work across your team rather than a tool people are using solo?" So, well, the yeah. API being something like pandas or Spark data right. frames or Modin or Polaris or whatever the hell R right. or yeah. S or whatever the hell you want to do, MATLAB. I don't care. Microsoft um, Excel. 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 Big one though. Big one, right? And you do a lot of courses on Excel. Let's talk about that for a second. Um, Matt and I always joke that Excel is sort of the dark matter of the data world. It, it's uh, if you're familiar <laughs> with dark, what dark matter is, it's like it's it's what is most of the known universe is supposedly comprised of. Nobody's ever seen dark matter. Just like most people have never seen your Excel reports. Um, they sort of exist on your desktop and you do things on them. And that's that's the world we live in. Uh, thoughts on Excel. I mean, we're talking about R and Python. These are popular, but I, I would argue the biggest interface for data by far is Excel. Yeah. So when I when I worked at Microsoft, we had a joke that Microsoft Excel is the world's most popular database engine, hands down. Right? I mean, it's, and they and, and they taught me a term that I never heard before, a spread mart. Dude, I'm writing that down. Hold on. Spread mart. Spread mart. Okay, I'm putting that. That's going to my book. Right. Every worksheet essentially is like your table in a data mart. And then, of course, you use VLOOKUPs back then, XLOOKUPs now, or index match to actually do your joints. <laughs> so that's genius, man. Uh, as Matt was saying about SQL, Excel is the same thing, right? Excel is also another, is essentially the cockroach of the data world. It, it's going to survive the nuclear holocaust. It's going to be there. Um, will be, and, the reason, and the reason is simple it's, it's the Swiss Army knife of data, basically, right? It's good enough. It's good enough. So early in my career, I was I was rapidly anti-Excel. I was a software engineer. I'm like, look, let's just get rid of Excel. Let's teach everybody SQL. It's not that hard. We get business people just querying the data warehouse directly, and life will be great. Um, oh, such a young, ignorant Dave back then. Uh, yeah. Did you have a mullet so back then or something? I did have a mullet. When, well, in the eighties, I did. Yeah, okay. Just trying to picture that young, ignorant Dave. He's like, it looks like a. You ever see that picture of Michael Scott with his old boss, like shaking hands? Oh, you're right. Um, exactly. Yeah. He's got the fanny yeah, pack on the, the mullet. So at the time, though, I was working at an insurance company, so I had to have you know professional hair at that point oh, in time. But I did. But I did have a mullet. Back, yeah. I did have a mullet. I did have a mullet back in the eighties. <laughs> nice. Uh, but it, but over time, I gradually said, look, you know what. The reality is you can't fight City Hall. Excel's not going to go anywhere. So instead of trying to fight it, embrace the whirlwind. How can you actually put a judo move on it, right? Where you can be like, okay, I'm not going to tell you not to use Excel, but I'm going to show you how to use it better, use yeah. it more effectively. And I think that's another opportunity where BI teams can really start introducing data science into the organization. Yeah. Um, is to say, look, you know what? Maybe I use another tool to actually do my work. But when I present findings and when I share findings, I share it in Microsoft Excel because that's the lingua franca of the business world. And in some cases, you might find teams or executives or stakeholders who 
will actually look more favorably on your results if it shows up in Excel. It almost seems more real to them if it's in Excel than it is in something else, right? Um, and uh, this is, this, you know, at this point in analytics, I'm, I'm realizing that it's more about people than technology and data. And that's just an example right there, right? I'm going to use Excel as a, as a judo move. Yeah, but you're teaching machine learning classes on Excel too. I mean, that's like the most, I, I would say, unintuitive interface for data scientists. It's like, you know, how would, how would I stoop so low as to not use a notebook? Like, you're going to make me use this spreadsheet? Like, what yeah. Yeah. Um, what do I do yeah. in this world? And the answer is pretty simple. The reason why is that there are certain teams that are interested in doing more advanced analytics, like say uh, like a marketing team. Right. They're interested in doing analytics, but learning R, learning Python is just a bridge too far to cross, but they would like to build like a logistic regression model where they're trying to figure out what factors are highly associated with paid conversion, let's say, right? Very common marketing thing to do and analyze. You can do that in Excel. You can. I mean, they're, they're, it, it is a reasonable tool for certain parameters. And then if you go beyond them, then you obviously need to get off of Excel and use something else. Which is totally fine, but within within the confines of making sense, yeah, well, you can do logistic regression in Excel, and the and the quality of the model is exactly the same that comes out of SAS or R, SPSS or Python. The coefficients are the same, the the calculated statistics are all the same. It's the same thing, right? You're just using the solver to actually do the underlying math instead of relying on some library in Python, for example, to do it. So why not, right? If you if the whole point is to deliver good enough results to allow people to make good decisions to improve things. And if Excel works for them, why not teach them how to do it? Right? Now, exactly it. 20 years ago, I would have like, that guy needs to be strung up for saying something like that. Mm. But nowadays I'm like, hey, just roll with it. Embrace the whirlwind. <laughs> well, and, and Devin's paper last week, I th again, I think it's one of the best papers I've read in a long time, but he had this idea of really notebooks and, and spreadsheets are more used for um, exports our data analysis, which isn't a novel idea in itself. We all know this, but but he had this interesting notion of, of um, thinking cycles, really. And, and so if you're waiting in SQL, for example, if you're waiting for a query to execute, that could take a long time. And really, you want to be getting iterations on your ideas quickly. So that's where fast notebooks come in, in handy, right? If you're able to crunch through numbers really quick, great. Get on to the next thing, right? Because your ideas, you know, keep exploring ideas as a notebook is for. That's why it's called a notebook. Spreadsheet's the same way. When you're doing EDA in a spreadsheet, I don't know if you've been there. I've been there countless times, but it's like you're, sure. just, you're nerding out. You're in the zone. It's like, if I move through the cell, what happens? And, you know, and all this stuff. And you're just, that, that's the art of it. Um, and it removes a lot of the delay. You're, it, it's, you're operating with data in real time, um, yeah. you know, and, and performing on it. And I think that's, you know, it, it's hard to explain when you're in that type of a zone, but it's, it's definitely, a, it feels really magical, you know, and it's, it's really good. You can't replicate that with, a, um, it, it's harder to replicate, I would say, with, with, um, you know, higher level tools, for example, right? Yeah, so. and, and you're and you're hitting on a real super important point. And this was this was a cultural mind shift for me when I moved out of traditional software engineering <clears throat> into analytics, right? I was the kind of guy that could tell you the difference between a strategy and a bridge, for example, right? I was all up on the OO gang of four, you know, domain driven design by Eric Evans, all that software engineering stuff, right? I had multiple books from Fowler on my bookshelf, <laughs> all that stuff. And then what I found was. I started doing ana analytics, data analysis and analytics using R and Python. And I started to feel a little bit dirty because yeah. from the software engineering background, I'm like, I'm not writing good maintainable code. And, it, and over time, I realized I'm like, 
doesn't matter because what I'm looking for is exactly what you described. I'm looking for quick iterations, right? So yep. I'm going to use the tools. I'm going to write my code. I'm going to use the libraries. I'm going to use whatever that allows me to do that faster. Like a prime example in Python is if you're going to do a regression analysis, don't use sklearn. Use stats models for it. Because why? Because stats models is based on R and you can actually iterate a lot faster and get your results a lot quicker using stats models and using sklearn for regression, right? That's a prime example even within the Python ecosystem yeah. of saying, look, I'm going to pick the right tool to help me iterate and understand what's going on faster and faster and faster. Okay, but I, I have a follow-up question. Uh, there have been many very notorious Excel errors in the last, even the last two decades where these errors have had an impact. They've like screwed up research papers. Turns out the findings were wrong. They've affected economic policy. They've affected business decisions. So, so going back to like maintainable quality code, how do we get around errors like that in Excel? In other words, how do we still test our code? How do we make sure the formulas are correct? How do we make sure that that sheet is not going to give us nonsense that misleads the company? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's a great question, right? And for a long time, I thought that Excel was inherently the problem. And then what I realized over time, um, especially as I started like debugging stored procedures, <laughs> Okay, that's fair. Thousand lines, two thousand oh. lines stored procedures. Oh my god! SQL. Oh yeah. What, is, this like, is this like community servers or something you had to do for crimes or like <laughs> for you, the crime of using Excel? It's what I got. It's what I got. Dude, that that code still exists, right? <laughs> it has to because nobody's going to fix it, <laughs> right? Because it's like it ain't broke. I'm not going to go in there. It's legacy. Don't touch it. But anyway, but there was but what this idea was is like, look. It's not that Excel is inherently evil, no more so than a 2,000 line stored procedure is inherently evil, if it's the right tool for the job being used in the right way. The problem with Excel is, is because it's ubiquitous, it becomes the proverbial hammer that everything then becomes a nail. Yep. Right. So to answer your question, Matt, I'd be the first one to say, are you using Power Query, for example? Can you actually automate this with using Power Query, which is all just the end programming language behind the scenes, right? Which is a scriptable language, reproducible. Are you actually using the tools at your disposal within the Excel environment in the right way to provide the kinds of checks and balances that you're talking about that you might normally only associate with a formal programming language, mm. right? Yeah, even, in so, even in so far as, dare I say, if you really have to, maybe you script some stuff in VBA, if you have to, right? I wouldn't be, the f I'm not a big fan of VBA personally, but it gets the job done. It's actually done. the future of data, so. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> yes, VBA, we're going back. Times are tough, but, I mean, so. Yeah, but the, and that's, and it, that's like, I think there was one I read about a while back in the UK during the, the COVID lockdowns where they exceeded some sort of data limit or something like that in Excel. And this is like an official government kind of spreadsheet oh, yeah, that bad decisions. That's right well that, that's that's you using the wrong tool for the job right it's not yeah. inherently excel's fault no more than it's you know it's the hammer's fault that i'm trying to drive a screw with it right. Right? a shitty carpenter that's all you yeah, are I'm, I'm a shitty so. carpenter that's, that's all it is. <laughs> i mean it's what it is <laughs> yeah so, so there was a harvard business review article i think 10 years ago that talked about how i think 80 to 90% of spreadsheets had some sort of error in them. But if you equate that to code, it just occurred to me too. It's like, tell me a code that's 100% accurate or it doesn't have any errors either. And I'll, I'll, I'll be waiting all day for you. By the way, show me any production system that only has 80 to 90%, 80 to 90, you know. Right. <laughs> I'd be like, damn, your, your engineering work is pretty good. If now, of course, people are making decisions better. off these spreadsheets though, yes. right? I think it's a big difference. But you, I think it also comes down to, you know, 
to me, it's a, how do you, and you're going to see this more chat GPT, right? Cause it hallucinates a lot. Um, and so that the thing is, if you think Excel is bad, think you're making some, uh, you know, weird decisions off Excel, just wait until you're making weird decisions off large language model outputs. Um, like how are oh, you yeah. going to know the difference between like fact and fiction at this point? Right. Well, so and, you, and, you can barely get it right with a spreadsheet. And, and, and this is the point that I bring up because I'm not necessarily popular. Like when I talk to like some of these executive talks that I give where I'm like, you ignore generative AI because you you hear you 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 bring up a really important point. If people can't make Excel spreadsheets work, how are they going to make sure that the prompts that they write are actually mm. correct? Because there is how do, how do you validate? Does Chat GPT come back and tell you that prompt actually isn't correct, Dave, for what you were in, what you really intended? I'm going to tell you what your prompt should be. It doesn't do that yet. So, <laughs> well, especially now that it's in uh, uh, Office 365 now, right? I think it, it, Microsoft just announced a new subscription, thirty bucks a month for uh, um, Chat GPT in Office. I think it was in Teams. So have fun. Yeah, uh, yeah, have fun <laughs> with that, right? I mean, if, if you're if you're if your formulas aren't correct now. Just because they're generated by chat GPT doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be any more correct going forward. <laughs> yeah, I mean, chat GPT is trained off of human behavior and human language, right? So it's basically trained to make the same kinds of mistakes that humans make. So, <laughs> and, and here's the thing, right? It's, and one of, the things I, one of the things I advise leaders is like, are you comfortable with the skills of your employees to craft the perfect prompt to get the perfect output. Your prime example is generating SQL, right? Relatively simple queries and joins and stuff like that. Chat GPT does a pretty good job of generating, or the LLMs do a pretty good job of generating that SQL. But if you're going against like a legacy production system, yeah, you have to know enough about the structure of the actual physical database to provide the prompt sufficient to give the actual SQL back. And at that point, you have to ask yourself, wouldn't it just be easier for me to write this, write the sequel myself? Yeah, we're back to the validation question, okay. right? Which is the same issue we started with in Excel, or frankly, any other programming language. What are your thoughts, so Dave? Okay, so I mean, whether we like it or not, like ChatGPT and generative AI is here to it's here to stay. Like, the cat's out of the bag. How does this impact BI yeah. and, and data science teams? Yeah, it's like a it's like a Kramer situation. It is, <laughs> <laughs> or Pet Cemetery, one of the two. Um, so. Uh, <laughs> But I mean, how, what do you, how do you think this impacts, uh, you know, BI teams and uh, sort of the theme of what we're talking about for BI being the best bet for data science? Um, very curious. Yeah, uh, I, I would say there, as with all things in the technical field, as you guys well know, right, having a good response inevitably to a leader's question of like, what are we doing with big data? What are we doing with data science? What are we doing with machine yeah. learning? What are we doing with AI? What are we doing with generative AI? Having a good response to that is important insofar as it can cause a lot of problems if you just don't give a good response to that question. That being said, what I would say is focus on the fundamentals. Because generative AI, does, as we were just talking about, if you don't have solid fundamentals, you can't write the prompt correctly anyway. So you have to learn the basics. You have to learn the yeah. fundamentals to begin with. So focus there first. And here's the thing. Don't necessarily jump to generative AI just because, okay, I took a class from Dave and he taught me this. So now I can write a prompt and then he'll ge it'll generate the code for me. Okay, sure. But there is still no substitute for building your fundamental skills by actually applying the things yourself directly, right? Go climbing up that proverbial learning curve, right? You know, becoming 
proficient, becoming knowledgeable. And that comes from experience. And then saying, okay, now that I'm experienced, I can use Chad GPT as a productivity enhancement for me. But I have to build that level of expertise first. And that's typically where, and, and I'm not, it's not just for um, BI teams. I would say the same thing for a marketing team. If they're saying, look, we want to use LLMs to generate copy for our digital ads. Like, well, do you right. know your markets? Do you know your segments? Do you know their pain points? If you don't know those things, you can't give a good enough prompt to generate the ad copy. Mm -hmm. Same thing. Yeah, I think last night I was using it to generate some dad jokes for uh, Chris Tab. Um, <laughs> how, how did that go? It I, went good. I, I had to throw in keywords like Arby's and stuff for prompts, but it ended up coming up with some pretty good jokes. Yeah. So, um, well, yeah, you got to get a prompting, right? I mean, you see this a lot. I, I think, um, yeah, a lot of marketers I know are all in on, you know, large language models. And I think that's, that's cool. It saves a lot of time. But to your point, it's like you got to know the subject matter that you're trying to make copy for. Because otherwise, it's going to be this like crap of, uh, you know, the whole sea of sameness going on. And, and it kind of makes me wonder, you know, what happens with the, you know, the notion of exploratory data analysis, because that's really where I think that's an art in itself. I think it's, it's, it's time well spent. Some people think it's a waste of time. I'm like, that's how you get to understand your data and like the nuance of it. Right. And if you, if you start outsourcing that, um, you know, to a large extent, like what, what value are you actually providing either as an analyst or a data scientist, if you don't know the quirks of the data and haven't really found those unique angles that are really going to start moving the needle for you, you know? Yeah. And again, this is about this idea of, so it's about this idea of building expertise. Yeah. Like for example, um, how do you write, how do you write a super powerful prompt to an LLM to generate, for example, an exploratory data analysis for a predictive model, given that maybe you're not all that familiar with the data in the first place. I, I, I find that extremely difficult. This is one place where BI teams, of course, as we talked about earlier, could come into play yeah. because they do know the data and they could write the prompt and all of that. But then like, how do you actually articulate it in such a way where you're like, hey, I want you to find all the combinations of categorical features that generate a XG boost model that is going to be at this level of accuracy and sensitivity and specificity or F1 score or whatever metric. I mean, that's going to be a pretty, pretty bitchin' prompt, I would think. Oh yeah. And, and again, you got to ask yourself, could I just do it myself? <laughs> and it would be more efficient. Yeah, yeah. Because even even trying to use ChatGPT for writing, like the copy it generates is so stylistically bad. Like it will generate good ideas, surprisingly, but stylistically, it's like more work to edit it than just to write it myself. To your point earlier, Dave, yep. about like writing SQL, at some point, it's like, why don't I just write this myself instead? And my right. fear too is that like with economic conditions plus chat GPT, companies might lay off a lot of their BI teams to say like, oh, we don't need as many anymore and lose all that domain knowledge. And that's very hard to rebuild. Yeah, that's but the LLM's just gonna have the domain knowledge, right? Yeah, so yeah. It's fine, man. It's fine. Right. It's all good. Right. How's so. yeah, right. We're just gonna we're just gonna go ahead and give open AI all of our proprietary data. So it'll, it'll there be you fine. Go. Yeah. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Security guys, you're fired too, because obviously we don't care about that anymore. <laughs> it doesn't matter, man. <laughs> It doesn't matter. It's all about generative AI, baby. Yeah, it's, it's it'll be interesting to see where this goes. I mean, it has a lot of utility, and I think it's it's a really cool tool for some things. Um, and again, it, you know, I think we're starting to see the limitations of it. But you know, again, every two weeks something new comes out. So who the hell knows? Maybe in two weeks you'll just have a solution that just rocks your socks and everything's uh, yeah, you know, everything solved. See, what did I see recently? Some some uh, some stuff about GPT four is like 
going down in terms of its capabilities now. Like it was like, it was going, it was like at this percentage of like being able to answer questions. And now it's like its accuracy is going down. And there's speculation that we're getting this negative feedback loop of generative AI content is feeding generative AI and it's starting to. Oh yeah, Matt, that's what I was talking about. I texted you the other night of uh, an article and I said this uh, recursion is going to be a uh, popular topic. And that's what I was talking about, the feedback loop between. Uh, so I think it was an article that was like uh, teachers are um, starting to show the limits of generative AI. And I was like, yeah. And I think what you're going to see is, um, you know, the more we prompt it, the more you're going to get outputs that are like the things you just prompted to do. So then it's just, it just becomes this like recursive, um, like uh, feedback loop, which is totally redundant actually. But um, uh, you know what I'm saying? So it, it's, yeah, I'm fascinated it, to see where this all goes. Yeah, it reminds me of the, the YouTube recommendation engine, right? Mm, yeah. You go you go a little bit down one thing and then it just takes you on this death spiral and all of oh. a sudden you're like, whoa, why, why am I seeing pro-Nazi videos here? What the hell is happening here? So, <laughs> this didn't happen to you, did it, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> so the, the joke for a long time <laughs> not, was... Not to me personally, no. <laughs> <laughs> I only use Bing. I don't... <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> I only use Bing. <laughs> so, so the joke for a long time was that it was the... Gangnam style recommender engine because right. at one point when that was really a popular video, it would always lead you back to Gangnam style eventually, and then it got better. So now it can recommend other horrible things. Instead. Yeah, these days it's well, probably like it's probably Mr. Beast, right? Eventually, you just you always get to a Mr. Beast video eventually at some point. Oh yeah, it's like my kid. He just uh, yeah, he had me go buy a D's nuts bar the other day at Walmart because um, that's a Mr. Beast Feastables bar. Um, so. He has a clerk for it. And they're just like, are you kidding me? It's like, this is what it is these days. It's YouTube. I read a really good book a few weeks ago, um, a few months ago, whatever. Uh, it was I can't remember. Off the Edge. So it's a book about why people become flat earth believers. <laughs> Fascinating book. So, and it talks about exactly what you're saying, where YouTube, like, you, you know, you start getting in some uh, videos and then suddenly the, uh, the spiral, it kicks in. And all of a sudden you find yourself, you could be looking at, um, I don't know, some uh, QAnon stuff. And all of a sudden it's like flat earth. And like, that okay. seems interesting. Let's watch that. Then like yeah, seven hours later, you've watched every flat earth video out there. Then now you're a convert. Then like, yeah. It's, it's, it's like, do you like so many times recommendation engines are nothing more than a powerful reinforcement mechanism for your, you know, your, for your biases. Yeah. You're just gonna be like, look, it just feeds me more and more information that I would like to believe to be true, or I already believe to be true. And, um, you don't really get a lot of serendipity, right? Where they throw like an, an off the wall topic or video at you just to see if you would like it, right? You don't see that serendipitous content very often anymore. So in data, is there an equivalent? Like you start out learning Python and you find yourself in like an Excel tutorial at some point? <laughs> uh, you know, it depends. If, if, you know, if the, if the content creator was this guy named Dave Langer, maybe. <laughs> it's all part of his funnel. <laughs> Buy my course. Just go ahead. You know, Python for Excel users. What? 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 Why not? I've got Python users. Why not? I have I have a course of for you know that I used to teach for R for Excel users. Why not? Right. <laughs> I got to get on that recommendation spiral, man. Yeah, uh, Dave Gonzalez brings up. Um, have you ever seen that meme? Birds aren't real. No, this is a whole rabbit hole. Google no, but it's it funny as hell. So birds, so it's it's actually a spoof on conspiracy theory. So they say that birds in the seventies they converted them to be robots, surveillance robots, and they they stand on power lines. So they can power themselves. <laughs> and the, the funny thing is, it's obviously a spoof, and yet I think there are people who actually believe it who totally buy into it, just like the flat right, thing. Right. Oh, it's for sure. It's confirmation bias in action. I yeah. knew it. 
I knew that's why they were on those power lines right. all the time. That's why they don't get electrocuted. They're robots. And the electricians are like, oh, man. Electrical engineers, oh, man. <laughs> yeah, but they're all part of the conspiracy, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, huh. but, but, you know, bring it back around to the original topic. <laughs> This is going to be a fun, fun, uh, fun exercise. Go for Chat it. GPT <laughs> arguably is just another example of why your BI teams can be useful, right? Because they have all that knowledge we were just talking about, right? They have the knowledge to potentially write better prompts than other people in your organization. Mm -hmm. Well, I heard this science writer a long yep. time ago develop the term BS detector. And he's like, when I see an announcement about a scientific breakthrough, I always have to get out my BS detector and decide if what they're talking about is plausible or too good to be true. And same thing here, like your BI team is there to look at the data and look at the prompts and say, does this make any sense? What's this telling me based on what I know about the data? Mm. Right, and that, okay, I love this, Matt, because now I'm gonna get on my soapbox a little <laughs> bit, right? Because don't lay off your BI team, don't get rid of them, because as your business folks use chat GPT, they're gonna be your last line of defense to actually be like, actually, that's not right. <laughs> that's not correct. <laughs> that's, a, that's a really interesting thought experiment. Because I think, you know, we're estimating that uh, generative AI is supposed to add a bunch of GDP and productivity. So I'm kind of like, what if companies operate, uh, I wonder if they could uh, operate worse, the same or better, right? What if they start operating better? If you just get rid of all the teams and everyone's just kind of winging it with a chat GPT and it just uh, sort of happenstance that you are really successful all of a sudden? I don't know. It'd be, it'd be interesting. It would be an accident. It'd be a fluke for sure. But um, I don't know. Yeah, I'm sure I some mean, companies are going to find out real quick, BuzzFeed. Uh, I think they're... Um, yeah. And I think, I think, and I, and I'm long-term I'm bullish on, on LLMs. Don't get me wrong. In generative AI, obviously I'm bullish on it long-term, but like so many breakthroughs that have come through in the technology space and especially in recent years, all the data related stuff, it takes a lot longer than people think to go through that entire hype cycle and get to yeah, for sure. productivity. Right. Cause like when, when people are talking about, I would like to replace this particular business process as it is, which is very, very human centric and very, very manual with a generative AI automated process. And yeah. Like, cool. That's great. Um, but you don't have all of your KPIs well defined. You don't even you actually can I really analyze and measure your own business performance. You want to start replacing processes wholesale? Yeah. Is totally. that really a good idea right now? <laughs> you should wait for that. We saw well, these arguments back in the Hadoop day too, right? Yeah. I mean, data warehouses are supposed to be dead. BI was supposed to be replaced by machine learning. I remember back in the day, everyone was saying this is going to happen, right? Um, right. You know, MapReduce is going to replace SQL. You don't need to learn it anymore. Yeah, no SQL, nothing. And I mean, <laughs> look at look at today, right? It's more yeah. everything's more popular than ever. So it's just, it's it's hard to unseat this stuff. Yeah, because it works. And we're struggling with the basics, to your point, Dave. Like, yeah. we actually have problems with basic business processes with humans. So, how are mm -hmm. you going to automate those? Right. And then, like, and once again, we talked about this idea well, that works. But if you're using generative AI, you got to make sure people know how to write the prompts. But if they can't actually work, execute the manual process very well, all of a sudden they're going to be prompt engineers of extraordinaire. I wouldn't, uh, bet. More, I wouldn't more, bet on it. It's more, more electrolytes on it or something. I think that was what they did in the <laughs> idiocracy. So. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. For the audience out there, just go watch that movie. I, I, I fully predict in the next 10 years, like idiocracy is where we're going to be at. So, um, I mean, we're kind of already there, I, I guess. Um, but yeah, that's more of a documentary of uh, what's yeah. <laughs> we're like Oppenheimer, but different. Um, <laughs> it's the history of days to come. 
that's what idiocracy is it's so true <laughs> well cool man uh it's good chatting with you i feel like we keep carrying on for a while but i'm sure the audience uh, you got a day job to get to um, unless you're in utah where you have a state holiday today um for people who want to learn more about you how can they do that uh you can find me on linkedin um i'm there all the time you can also check me out on my website daveondata.com feel free to drop YouTube me an channel, email right? or and i have a youtube channel as well you had uh, one of the videos. most popular uh, data science videos back in the day, from what I recall. I did, yeah, 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 and it was with R, and it was terrible looking, actually, from what I remember. It was just like you and your oh, it was, uh, dude, Windows it was, machine. It was oh bad. man, it was like it was a lark. I started my YouTube channel on a lark. Somebody suggested that I post up a tutorial video, and it was just me like talking into my Mac Pro back then for like an hour. <laughs> and it was How many so views popular? Too? Yeah, it's, it was pretty popular. It's million plus views, I think, yeah, lifetime so far. Um, yeah. It's it's way out of date now, obviously. Um, but some people still watch it, and I get DMs every now and then and say, "Thank you for that video." And I'm like, "Dude, really? What I'm video? Kind of, I'm kind of embarrassed that you watched that, actually." <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I do have a YouTube channel with Excel tutorials, mostly nowadays, nice. on how to do data analysis with uh, Excel. They're really good too. I've watched quite a few of them. So, oh well, thanks. We've done shows uh, on and off for, for a long time. So we've... yeah, yeah, we have. Yeah, we used to do this thing called the Data Heretics way back during COVID with uh, me, uh, Ku, and Danny Ma, and uh, Dave here, and uh, it was a lot of fun. So, um, yeah, much hasn't changed. We're still heretical. I know, and you're now you're in the Monday morning data chat for. Yeah, speaking of uh, think how things uh, sort of you know start high and go low like ChatGPT, uh, here you are. So, um, <laughs> so wow, <laughs> you got any? I'm just kidding. You got any? Uh, you got any events coming up? Uh, yeah, I'll be teaching live at uh, the TDWI conference in San Diego in early August. I'll be teaching Sick. five hands-on data science courses in Python at that conference. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. I'm all in on the Python these days. <laughs> you really are. That's yeah. awesome, man. It's good to see. Well, the great thing is that all that content I had in the R world, and all I had to do is change the code out because the base concepts are the same. It doesn't matter yeah. if you're using... R, Python, or SAS, or whatever, right? K-means is K-means. Just carts, cart is cart. doesn't really matter what technology you're using. Oh. Cool. Matt, anything for you coming up? Uh, not at the moment. Yeah, more stuff in yeah. the fall. How about you, Joe? I think you've got a few things going on. Yeah, August 10th, I'll be in Atlanta uh, for the uh, Joe Reese and DBT Roadshow. So we'll be at uh, Aimpoint. So uh, I have a post about that. Register, come hang out, autograph your book or your, your iPad or whatever you have. Um, so <laughs> screens only holograph your forehead if you'd like to um what else is going on here then um in the 16th in utah i'm uh speaking at utah data engineering meetup uh the meetup i started why not crash your own party um, is that going to be webcast or how's that going to work i don't know yet maybe okay. maybe not i don't know um yeah so it's kind of warming up for my uh tour in australia it kicks off on the 21st in perth so uh, this would be uh Australian tour. Man, when I grow up, I want to be Joe. I want to go on Australian tours. Hey, it can be like ACDC or something, going on the tour around the... Uh... <laughs> so, Red Hot, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully not as not like, antics as ACDC. But, uh... Actually, I was reading the, the writer back in 2008. I was on Smoking Gun looking at uh, band writers for some reason. And um, they had ACDC actually, they require now three oxygen tanks in the, uh, in the uh, green room. They're so old. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but it's just like, okay, that's a requirement, right? And they, they, yeah, no, no alcohol until after the show. Right. Um, so it's like, <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's going to be me at some point. I'll be like, I'm going to go talk to this conference. I'm like, 
all right, let me talk to you about BI teams. <laughs> I mean, I could see that when you were like this happening when you're in your 20s and just like completely out of control. Or it's like when we we're still talking about data in our 70s, Joe, well, we'll need the oxygen tanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Uh, better get off here before we uh, start cursing ourselves. Um, all right. Thanks to the audience. We'll see you next week. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs> Take care. <laughs>